Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Samples History Podcast. Yeah, just going to give a brief overview of what this podcast is going to be going forward, what we're going to discuss in this episode, and just just the general format. Firstly, thanks everyone for tuning in. This episode is going to be on the war on drugs, with a specific focus on crack cocaine, its development, its impact. That's that's going to be discussed by mainly by Jack Abair, who's who's going to present. Uh, a talk um, during the podcast. Hi. Um, so from there, we're going to sort of firstly lay a groundwork of, of the general context in which we're going to discuss a war on drugs and crack cocaine. And then afterwards, we're going to kind of assess some broader implications. Overall, this is going to hopefully be a monthly uh, happening. And we're going to try to keep, you know, a relaxed discussion based this. Hopefully, topics surrounding the A-level cause. Now, we're going to try connect it, show where it's relevant to the A-level. This isn't necessarily stuff you'd put in your essay, for example, but, you know, just enrichment, topics that we personally found interesting. Uh, Complementing prior knowledge. Exactly. Uh, topics which, in general, will be, will be beneficial. Yeah, so where, where do we really start? Now, before I let Jack delve into a kind of in-depth discussion on crack cocaine and its impacts, I'm just sort of going to lay a brief overview of what we'll be arguing and what has been argued. So, the first anti-drug laws were the um, kind of originated in the 1870s with anti-opium laws, and we're going to start start discussing this because I think it's it's very interesting. Um, opium in the 19th century was at first considered a, a medical sort of, sort of tool um, to alleviate pain. But in the 1870s, following a wave of Chinese immigration who brought with them smoking opium as a sort of recreational habit, opium became associated with this image of immigration. Yeah. And it became associated with this image of, you know, a, a different, different people, a different culture, and sort of became this target. And that saw the implementation of opium laws, which had a broad effect, but were largely targeted on, you know, demonising this foreign uh, habit bought by Chinese immigration. And I mean, this seems like a specific example, but in reality, it's a trend that we've, we've seen throughout history. Were the, were the largest use of opium still Chinese people, or was it kind of creeping into still white American society at that point? No, I mean, opium was already, had already an established okay. usage in white America, but yeah. it was sort of the, the different uh, the, the Chinese uh, association with the drug yeah, yeah. more being used as a rec for something of recreational which to the white um, the, the, one could say racist uh, sure. prejudiced white America seemed like something you know, foreign and strange mm -hmm. so why is this important because it's a sort of trend we see continuously happening throughout history the first anti-cocaine laws in the 1900s were origi originated in the south and were yeah. directed towards black men so we sort of see this this trend of drugs being used as a weapon mm -hmm. of this is something that those people do, the foreign yeah. people do. And that, that will, will be a large focus on the, um, what Jack is going to say about, about crack. But where do we start in reference to this talk? Well, we'll start in really in the 1960s, where drugs kind of become a, a symbol of, of youth development and political dissent. This is during the Nixon administration. In June... 1971, it's important kind of to start point. In June of 1971, obviously President Nixon declares his war on drugs. Yep. 
associating heroin with black populations, associating marijuana with the hippies, and sort of implementing very, very harsh, punitive, not reformative, yeah. not, not rehabilitative, sorry, not reformative. There was no, there was no emphasis on rehabilitation. No focus on getting help for people who are actually suffering from these drug problems. It, it was just purely punishment, and this war starts. So, before we return to kind of looking at the broader picture, Jack is going to speak to us about something more specific, which had a very, very important impact on the development of the story. This is the, the origins and the development of the crack epidemic in America, that along with several other drugs, was one of the most prominent problems yeah. and one of the most widely dispersed and damaging drugs that happened. Yeah. And we'll discuss the impact of it. So anyway, I'll pass over to yeah, Jack. Yeah, so, no, uh, as you were saying, on the note of why it was just so damaging, Crack's, um, crack's origins actually came about because it's in, it, it's in its original form, it was just powdered cocaine. However, this was very expensive. Um, a drug only really accessible to the upper white classes, those who had wealth, um, which pretty much um, eliminated the, the majority right. of minorities, particularly black people. Um, but in... Um, in the early 80s, um, the Contra rebels, who are the main traffickers of this drug, powder cocaine. Um, so the Contra rebels were sort of responsible for bringing the Yeah, exactly. They, put it, they took it in from Colombia and brought it in past uh, the Caribbean islands and up into North okay. Florida. Right? Again, we have this foreign association. Exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, there was actually a glut building up in the Caribbean islands. So there was way too much cocaine, which meant when it got to America, the supply was very uh, large. However, the demand was either just static or not increasing. Okay. Um, so what they did to respond to this was make what we now know is a uh, crack cocaine. So making it in a smokable form rather than just something you you know inhale through the nose. Um, and what really set crack uh, cocaine apart from its uh, original powder form was the fact that it was, A, gave you a much faster high and B, and most importantly, was much, much cheaper. So instead of just um, being a drug that was something you only found in, you know, like rich businessmen kind of parties, that kind of thing, it was much more associated with just your typical, normally ghetto, um, with black people um, predominantly using it around those kind of neighborhoods. Also white people, but um, as, um, as yeah. Carla was saying, it was linked to uh, being a black problem. So it's focused on white people using it, was pretty much irrelevant to the media. They didn't really care about it. Um, which leads to sort of the targetization. Exactly, yeah. Right, um, okay. And the reason it starts, its use becomes so ubiquitous in uh, uh, urban America. It's just because the appeal of dealing it is so large. I mean, lots of uh, uh, black teenagers and youths, um, possibly either with no um, f uh, form of education or good education, so I say yeah. at a high level, cool. um, which means they have very limited job opportunities. Those that do have jobs, many of them are on minimum wage or very close to it, and they're making very little money. Normally, about I think it's about $4 um, an hour, excluding tax at that point. Um, but what dealing does, it just makes it incredible. Yeah, what, what dealing does just makes it incredibly easy to make a lot of amount of money in a very short period of time. And add to that the fact that yeah. policing on the drug at this time is very limited, not much known about the drug, 
and what it does. So people kind of turn a blind eye to it. So you've you've discussed the the kind of appeal. So yeah. You sort of described a circular system. You know, uh, people would take it to cope with the problems, mm-hmm. the the failures of the welfare system. People would deal it again to cope with the failures yeah. of the welfare system. They needed a means to make money. You've discussed how it got into the country, um, but in terms of let's say kind of the the broader impact mm-hmm. what ha- we're trying focusing on how did this specifically impact poor black americans mm-hmm. across the nation well yeah as you're saying I mean, that's the issue of first dealing it the predominantly of the dealers of uh, this drug are black which also leads to as we see um, as the drug develops there's increased competition because so many people are seeing the money that's being made from dealing this drug more people want to get involved. Violence. This Very leads to gang wars. Um, violence erupts. People, dealers who are uh, trying to um, make a living of this drug, now they're, they're not even just trying to survive anymore. They're trying to thrive, all right? And to do this, to supplement this um, this endeavour, they're a lot of them buy guns. Um, I, I mean, mean, this is a this is a really, really, <coughs> thank you for saying it, a very important point. We still see this, I mean, today, yeah. so much of... The, say, the two two main problems that we can associate with America, we associate in modern day America, yeah. back then and now, is a problem of violence and a problem of drugs. And mm-hmm. you know, I just highlighted through this example of crack cocaine, mm-hmm. obviously this is true for heroin, this is true for any illicit substances. Yeah. Um, the association, mm-hmm. firstly, of the, the black population of black people with this drug is problematic because it leads to unfair targetization but also the problem of violence and problem of drugs are, are really deeply interlinked yeah. and I think you know that, that's something very powerful to consider how the two stories like marry into each other anyway continue sorry um, no worries um, yeah just kind of adding to that I think the rise of uh, people the rise of drug competition obviously leads to the rise of guns and that means a huge increase in violence. I think, um, I believe over a hundred percent increase in violence between 18 to 24 year old black males, um, in the 1980s or 1984 to 89, even it doubled. 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 And and how did the, the police respond to the uh, prevalence? Yeah. Um, I think so early eighties before much was known about a drug, um, the media hadn't really, got to grasp the whole story yet it was very limited i mean police corruption increased um 300 um in california between 1981 to 84 namely because um crack dealers were just buying them out to basically say look okay. we'll pay you some it's money a failure, a massive failure, you turn a blind eye to us exactly a huge failure laying down the public just for their personal gain um so in the early years it's as i said pretty much non-existent everyone gets away with it However, in around 1986 or so, it begins to completely turn around. The media get a grasp of the story now. It's all that's being talked about. Um, Nazi Reagan in particular is uh, the leader of the, the Just Say No campaign, which is just an absolutely awful slogan. Really oh, yeah, okay. incredibly vague. There's well, nothing so, so we're actually going to come to discuss the, the Just Say No campaign in a minute but the just say no campaign gets a lot of people on board yeah because i think and now i'd like you to um, explain in the context of a, of a crack of a crack what the just say no campaign did or yeah. moreover what it didn't do 
sort mm. of how incarceration continued. But I think just for the audience, the Just Say No campaign in the context of Regan's campaign of, well, a development of this hardline opinion from Nixon, where it wasn't a matter of rehabilitation. Take, for example, the heroin epidemic, which kind of, let's say, it spawned, started in the 60s, uh, which is, which kind of pre-exists the crack problem. But, you know, heroin ravaged cities like New York. Yeah. Um, and initially, when little was known about the drug, there was almost more flexibility yeah. with what people could do. Um, methadone was used as an early treatment for heroin addiction and was actually initially very promising and um, caused uh, resulted in a, a drop of crime rates. Methadone, by the way, is a sort of synthetic substitute yeah. for, for heroin, which helps ease um, users off this. This is evidence that a system of rehabilitation would have worked. But this very, very quickly changed for a series of reasons. It's quickly changed because you know, the, there needed to be a public enemy number one. Mm -hmm. Nixon needed his public enemy number one for several reasons. Firstly, to demonize, to demonize his opponent. He wanted to associate blacks with um, black people with heroin. He wanted to associate with the hippies with, with marijuana. It played into the image of violence of black Americans. The image of violence that had, had existed from since the Jim Crow era was convenient. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, just adding to that, I think um, always in history we see um, notable politicians picking out someone to demonize because it gives them this um this image that they're a tough guy kind of leader it really plays into the hands that they're not taking you know they're not taking anything bad happening while they're in charge they're going to crack down on it they're going to give them that uh, their supporters that impression that they're on job you know um and as you said nixon did that and also later in the 80s reagan does the exact same with crack uh, users this time he says crack users in the news but really as we later see it is pretty much only black people i mean literally uh, up to 1994 not a single white person was convicted for any crack related offense um despite the fact that two-thirds of its users were white so just to finish conclude the point of um the different strategies rehabilitation became a politically unviable solution yep. it was just a matter of punishment 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 a quote from John Ehrlichman, uh, a former Nixon domestic affairs advisor. Uh, this this very powerful quote, which is which is often referenced to this sort of demonization of drugs. We knew it could we could make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily. We could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Well, let's first focus on that, that part of the statement. With, were they lying about the drugs? Not necessarily. Crack cocaine, as, as you sort of described, highly dangerous. Inherently, highly, yeah. Inherently dangerous. Heroin, inherently dangerous. I mean, the media had grasped this uh, dangerous perception. Media, the the culture had associated this her heroin crack. Crack is later, uh, but heroin in the, with, with violence and, and problems. Yeah. So 
lying about the drugs. Okay, not necessarily. What is a lie was the association mm-hmm. with black communities. Yeah. The association with political enemies. This was largely fabricated. Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of brings us on to our last point. Why did this resonate so much? Why was it so useful? And why does it still exist today? Mm-hmm. Well, following, you know, emancipation, following uh, in the in the nineteenth century, following the freedom of Black Americans, there remained this white fear. This remained this desire of control, but it had to sort of become more subtle yeah. because obviously um, Jim Crowism became unacceptable segregation you can't you can't just put in the news you know war on black people they're all using this drug but um what they did do um again not quite not maybe as subtle as just saying this drug is a terrible thing but when they were discussing uh, maybe the problems of crack they would always depict uses of uh, crack in the media to be uh black people particularly black mothers in fact um and this myth of um the crack uh, baby was perpetuated um, in which um, so black mothers um, would use the, the the drug and consequently prenatally expose their babies to the drug, which would supposedly you know completely ruin this kid and his health, and uh, that would be used to demonize black mothers as evil and you know caring more about this drug than their own kid. But this, in fact, was just disproven later on for just being absolute rubbish. I mean, heroin and marijuana, both. Um, both much more dangerous yeah. in terms of prenatal exposure. But, However, again, it's just not convenient yeah. to put that message out. So they use that um, to demonize this uh, section of people. Look, another example we can use is cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah. You know, these are associated and these are kind of perceived, at least today, and especially during you know, the 60s and 70s. These were maybe different during an abolitionist era, but prohibitionist era, sorry. But in the 60s and 70s, the, smoking and um, alcohol were kind of perceived, let's say, as a, as a white man's yeah. drug. There's significantly more evidence that both smoking and drinking have effects on um, prenatal uh, deformed problems, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. But this just didn't fit the narrative. Yeah. Something was needed to demonise X, namely political opponents, namely keep black populations down, keep them at bay while kind of ignoring the reality. There was already evidence at the time, scientific evidence, that, for example, marijuana was not, was not d- dangerous. As in, listen, when we discuss mar- the legal problem of legalisation of marijuana, for example, in current media, it's often addressed as if, oh, there's new scientific factors come out, that yeah. it's actually not that bad for us. And I'm missing... This is not becoming a debate on legalization of drugs or yeah. anything. This is just purely to kind of point out that it was never really a matter of health. Yeah. It is well known and was well known at the time that me- methods of helping addicts offer substance were both more beneficial to the addicts, more beneficial to crime rates, more beneficial to communities. But this, this just didn't happen. It was purely punitive. They wanted to make a demonstrate that these people were the wrong. They, they, white people remained unconvinced that it was part of their problem. But again, as you said with with the it showed the statistics, um, 
the the levels of usage of, for example, yeah. crack were, were relatively even between white and black communities. Yeah, it's developed that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's another way. I think um, it's an interesting way that obviously ghettos, just because they're so densely populated with more African Americans, they're just very easy for the police to raid, and not just easy. They probably want to, to be honest. Um, so they just use these high uh, density populations of crack yeah. dealers and crack users and say, right, we're not doing anything illegal here. We're not doing anything that can be, you know, directly linked to us being racist. Let's just exploit it. That leads to a huge um, rise in criminalization of black people. Um, and as you were saying about the rehabilitation, literally only 10% of drug patients, not even back in the 80s and 90s, but it would have been much Only 10% of, of uh, drug addict patients in, yeah. uh, in American history have received speciality treatment. We know that's far more useful than actually, like, you know, bringing people back into society, getting them to be functional members again. But investment wasn't put into that. Investment was heavily um, put into um, more militaristic kind of police forces. Okay. Um, particularly a police force called TNT. That was the one used to carry out all these drug raids through late 80s, early 90s. Um, but yeah, as, as you were uh, saying, like the, the way of just uh, using um, some uh, kind of group of people to demonize yeah. and then appearing as though you're cracking down really hard on it, it's very good for the political image, but it's not actually helping your society at all, you of know, course. just making it worse. And this is in fact going to lead us on to, to the final two points. So. The penultimate point is how it sort of connects to the modern day issue. And now we know that a quarter of the world, world quarter, let me re- repeat that, a quarter of the world's incarcerated popu- population is found in America. One in four people behind bars yeah. is found, can be found in America. And that, I mean, it's just, incredibly disproportionate it is a, and it's sort of a shocking statistic which, which immediately jumps out at you also black young black americans are disproportionately present in the american jail system yeah absolutely um by so by 1989 in fact one in four uh, black men um, were incarcerated on probation or on parole um, by 1995 this statistic even uh, jumped to nearly one in three yeah. So as you were saying, it's not just um, the US people being disproportionately represented in our prisons, it's black people. Being... But why is this important? Because up until 1960, 1970, now this is a generalisation, but um, it's a statistic, it's a series of statistics more cleverly um, quoted in the attached reading and um, watching that, that will leave uh, in a link at the bottom, which you'll be able to click, hopefully you'll be able to find. But... The level of the prison population in America was relatively stable until the 60s and 70s when this punitive ideology, this crackdown on violence and the war of drugs and the, the whole agglomeration, conglomeration of things that came with that as sort of a package deal. From that point onwards, the prison population in America, incarcerated in America, skyrocketed, skyrocketed for crimes of low-level dealing for crimes of low-level possession, especially, again, amongst young black Americans. This has perpetuated the modern problem of 
um, mass incarceration, especially mass young black incarceration, it has perpetuated problems of police targeting black communities. I hate the, I, I'm really against, and now this is opinionated, I will, I will, I must clarify that it's my opinion. I think that um, often it, throughout this whole period, it was characterized that the police targeted ghettos. They targeted, they didn't target ghettos. Ghettos is again, it's a sort of replacement word for targeting of black communities. It was as the word as many as at the center of us talk, it was, it was convenient. And the, the effects of this, the ramifications of this have continued today. It's become an accepted part of our psychology and accepted part of the way we view how we should treat addicts through punishment yeah and that this has had untold impacts on the black civil rights movement absolutely um yeah so anyway that sort of bring draws us to a to a kind of conclusion of, of where we wanted to get to today um briefly what what relevance could we could one associate with the a-level course you know in a, in a literal sense? Um, well, I guess it's just another, it's another kind of illustration of how, you know, supposedly blacks achieve all legal equality by 1965, I believe, I get the dates wrong, yeah. But it's evidently, it's just getting um, perpetuated in a um, de facto, um, de facto manner, you know. Um, so, yes, blacks have full legal rights, supposedly treated all the same in the law, but as we can see, yeah. that just deteriorates in practice. I mean, is it, you know what's even more interesting? It says in the, in the 13th Amendment, mm -hmm. freedom to all Americans, except, except no slavery. Slavery yeah. was abolished, but unless a crime had been committed, mm -hmm. a quarter of America, of the world's population of criminals, mm -hmm. we could, you could even say criminals is people who... who have their, had their freedom removed is in America, the, the land of the three. I mean, free, there's a real irony of, mm -hmm. to this and supposed black freedom, supposed equality for all races. Mm -hmm. I mean, the argument that we've presented, you know, the narrative of why drugs became demonized, mm -hmm. the narrative of incarceration really prompts otherwise. And just, just food for thought on that matter. Now, this isn't necessarily anything I'd say one could include in an essay. Um, but I think it's an interesting angle on the, the last kind of 40, 30 years of development of the civil rights movement. I don't know if you would agree or you think. Yeah, definitely. I think it just gives you that better overarching view of the context yeah. of, um, some of these, um, you know, of the, the civil rights movement and also some of the aftermath, how, how racism was continuously perpetuated even after black equality had been obtained. So, yeah, definitely. Still, still today, still today, Absolutely. of course. Um, yeah, so anyway, thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. Um, we're hopefully going to keep a sort of informal discussion-based format going forward. Um, the next episode will be on unions um, with a focus on kind of the, the effects organised crime had on unions especially the Teamsters Union. Um, yeah, we'll be back in a month. Thank you very much, guys, for Thank tuning you. in. Um, see you soon.